Okay, Forge family, let's turn to the Word of God together. The last time we were in Zechariah chapter 11, in which Yahweh, the Lord, prophesied that Judah and all of Palestine would be devastated. He tasks Zechariah the prophet to shepherd the nation of Judah as the flock was designated for slaughter. The prophet made for himself two shepherds, staffs, one named Favor and one named Union. Only the destitute, the broken, the widows, the orphans, and the sick drew near to him. The rest of Judah despised the Lord and his prophet. The leaders of Judah are described as wicked shepherds, and the Lord, through his prophet, wipes them away. Zechariah chopped the staff named Favor in pieces to signify the removal of the favor of the Lord. And then Zechariah asked for his severance pay from the nation to be done with Judah. The leaders counted out 30 pieces of silver, an amount that was viewed as a pittance, dirt wages. Now that chapter just shifted to the messianic fulfillment when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus to the Jewish rulers for 30 pieces of silver. The Lord says, Zechariah, cast thou those pieces of silver to the potter. In Matthew 27, Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver on the floor of the temple and runs out. Those silver coins were gathered up and sent out to purchase a worthless piece of land from a potter in which foreigners would be buried on their death. Then Zechariah chopped up the staff named Union, and the union between Judah and Israel became delayed into the far distant prophetic future. The chapter finished with descriptions of a worthless shepherd that would savage the flock and come under God's judgment, likewise in the future day of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Lord, you saw fit to give that prophet a glimpse and a taste of the future Messiah and the events around him and his first ministry on earth. Now, I confess to a personal shock that once again Judah has turned away from you. Just somehow I had not read that in scripture with that clarity. Now Father, we would be a company of believers that seeks for and welcomes back the prodigals here in the Bay Area that have left the faith walked at a great distance away from you and the scriptures. You still love them, and you're calling out for their return, just as you do for Judah and Israel. Prepare us, Lord, to love those prodigals well. In Jesus' name. All right, let's open to Zechariah chapter 12. It begins with the words, the burden of the Lord concerning Israel. If you turn back three chapters, chapter 9 begins the same way, with a burden, which is an oracle or a prophecy. Here, this prophecy deals with the ultimate deliverance of Israel, seeing them restored and surrounded with the Lord's blessings. Now, that is a huge shift from chapter 11, which dealt with Judah and ran long into the future of judgment against that nation. Here, 
he clearly addresses the whole nation of Israel. The Lord then lays out three mighty, incomparable creation examples. He's the one who stretches out the heavens. He is the one who lays the foundation of the earth. And he is the one who forms the spirit of man within him. Now, note the present tense verbs. He stretches, he lays, and he forms. Yahweh is still active in his creation. You can see an example of the first ongoing creation work in our expanding universe. He's still stretching it out. Having stated his qualifications on the front end of this prophecy, the Lord continues in verses 2 to 3. Quote, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling in all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And I, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, all who lift it, will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now the Lord Yahweh will intervene against the surrounding nations that would swallow up Jerusalem. Instead, the Lord will give them a cup of intoxication, causing them to stagger, to reel, to go mad, to lose mental functions. Then he compares Jerusalem to a great stone, and as these people groups come to seize Jerusalem and carry it away, the very weight of that stone will severely injure them. The Lord says that all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. This foretells the gathering of nations to Har Megiddon. Uh, we say Armageddon, okay, but in Hebrew it's Har Megiddon. To, and the, the nations are coming to war against Jerusalem, as is recorded in Joel chapter 3, 9 to 16, and Revelation 16, verses 16 to 21. The Lord says, in that day, to introduce the stone which is in Jerusalem, and this is the first of 16 uses of that phrase, in that day, that will occur in the next three chapters of Zechariah. Obviously, the Lord is setting in place dates and times for these events. Verse 4 follows with, in that day, with the Lord declaring, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and her rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Jacob while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So the Lord says he's going to keep watch over Judah. Now, we know that this gathering of all the nations of the earth to war against Israel is going to take place in the valley of Jezreel. Okay? This is a 200-square-mile breadbasket flatland patch in the middle of the nation. And I believe it was uh, General Allenby who stood in that, um, in that valley and, and looked at it and said, this is prime artillery and tank warfare land. Now, the Lord says uh, uh, that the, this is a reference here to, the, to what Zechariah wrote out, okay? This is the fourth reference to the eye of the Lord. Here, the imagery is all 5th century B.C. 
when these nations gather in the valley of, of Jezreel at Har Magadon, the military power that horses symbolized in Zechariah's day will likely be modern computer-integrated war machines that will rep replace cavalry with vastly more firepower. But the Lord says he will strike every horse with bewilderment or panic and every soldier with madness. We of all peoples here in Silicon Valley uh, know what computer viruses can do to machines and what weaponized bioengineered viruses can do to men. Now, I'm not a prophet here. But when the Lord promises bewilderment, madness, and blindness in battle, only his power can accomplish this. There are ample Old Testament examples of how the Lord goes to war against the enemies of Israel. And the bewilderment, madness, and blindness that are listed in, in Deuteronomy 28 are the, among the curses that the Lord would loose on Israel for their disobedience and rejection of him. Now the Lord prepares to turn those curses loose on the peoples who come to war against Jerusalem. In verses 5 to 9, he prophesies the protection of Judah and the response of all the clans of Judah. Quote, then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are all the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they may consume on the right hand and on the left all of the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, the Lord promises that he will use the tribe of Judah and protect their tents as priority one. He'll do that ahead of the protection of Jerusalem, which follows. And he will use Judah as a raging fire against the nations that come to surround Jerusalem. Yahweh is going to lift up the house of David... In, and so the, the, uh, the supremacy, the preeminence of the house of David can be seen. Now look with me at the end of verse 8. Quote, And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Now house of David, from which Messiah is descended, will shine with glory and be lauded with praise, just like Elohim. What an amazing statement there. And just as the angel of the Lord went before the march of Israel in the Sinai desert, so too the angel of the Lord will go before the house of David. Then the Lord says that in that day, he will set about to destroy the nations who come against Jerusalem. In verses 10 to 14, there's a shift from physical deliverance to spiritual deliverance. This 
restoration pattern was set in Deuteronomy chapter 10, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. You could check that out for yourself. To begin this radical spiritual change, he, through Zechariah, says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So on the royal leaders descended from David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, there is to be an anointing that will pour out grace and it will also pour out supplication. Now this last word, supplication, are cries and prayers to God. Grace is God's favor on those who deserve none of God's blessings. Supplication is also a word for pleading, for the passionate cry out for grace. And so God puts in place this, this cyclical thing where he pours out grace in his favor on those who don't deserve it. And then they begin to cry out for more, more grace in the pleading. And it returns. There's more grace and there's more pleading. There's more grace and there's more pleading. The convicting work of Holy Spirit will turn their eyes on the one that they had pierced. Here's this messianic shift again. The one here is Jesus of Nazareth, executed by the order of Pilate to quell the angry mob of the Jews who demanded that Jesus be crucified. In John 19, it's recorded that the execution squad of Roman soldiers had hung three men on crosses to die. Because of the approach of the Sabbath at sunset on Friday evening, the Romans made to hurry death to those hanging on the crosses. When they arrived at the cross of Jesus, he had already yielded up his spirit to God and died. To make sure of death, one of the soldiers took a spear and thrust it into the torso of the body of Jesus. Out flowed blood and water. The blood from the coagulated blood of death and the water from the pericardial sac around the heart, revealing that Jesus had died of a broken, burst heart. It is this piercing that calls out to Judah to see whom they had pierced through the surrogate execu execution squad. Now verse 10 says that having looked at him whom they had pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly for him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There's almost nothing in, in, in marriages and in human experience that uh, prompts deep grief like the death of a firstborn child or the death of an infant. Having been struck with, with the recognition of the one that they had pierced, they mourn. This term, mourn, occurs five times in this and the next two verses. The mourning is accentuated. It's amplified as if they were mourning for the loss of the firstborn son. Verse 11 and 14 to 14. They speak of the great mourning over the pierced Messiah. That, that in and of itself, the Jews could not even countenance 
a Messiah coming to them that would be pierced. In that day, quote, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The reference to the mourning at Hadad Rimon has a link to Second Chronicles 35, uh, where the where that, that little village, if you will, deeply mourned the death of, of King Josiah. You see, Necho, king of Egypt, was on the move, taking his chariots, infantry, archers, and cavalry forces to join the Assyrians to fight the Babylonians and their allies at Carchemish. He had been, had an encounter with Yahweh who told the king of Egypt not to fight Judah, but to hurry through the land to Palestine to get to the battle. Necho messaged Judah's king, Josiah, to not come out to battle as he passed through the valley of Jezreel to get on to the north, into Syria. Josiah went out to stop Necho and was cut down by the Egyptian archers. It is said that there was great mourning in Hadad Rimon, a town near Megiddo, the entrance of the Jezreel Valley. The Lord says that there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like that which happened at the death of Josiah close to Hadad Rimon. Then the Lord says, the whole land will mourn with each family by itself, with wives separated from them. The list includes the house of David, the house of Nathan, the house of Levi, and the family of the Shimeites. This gives two representative houses of royalty and two representative houses from the priesthood of Israel. This mourning and repentance will be led by the civil and religious leaders, but it will spread to all the families of the land. Now, note here, there are no professional mourners wailing, tearing at their clothes, and covering their heads with ashes. This isn't a, an obligatory public gathering to show mourning. Okay? Instead, this will be a Holy Spirit-led mourning of repentance, and every individual will bewail their sinful choices and previous unwillingness to repent before the Lord. And they will repent for the having pierced Messiah. Now I'm convinced that men and women grieve differently. And because they give themselves to mourn their sin and the role that they had in the piercing of Messiah, they will cease conjugal relationships during this period of grief. Ford's family, this is a mighty display of real repentance in the end times future. The Lord has said it, and it will be so. On that day, all of Judah and Israel will mourn. But look with me at Revelations chapter 1, verse 7. Here's what it says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth 
will mourn over him. Even so, amen. The text says that the tribes of the earth will mourn over the coming of Jesus. Our sin, our waywardness, our choices to not be holy as he is holy. Those were our sins that put Jesus on the cross, too. In verse 7, immediately after he, Jesus appears, we, too, will repent and mourn. For all of Israel, that will be followed by great joy. And likewise for us, we will be in his arms. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for sending Holy Spirit to us and into us so that we can repent and mourn our sin. Lord Jesus, we would do that early and thoroughly in our days. We would walk with you toward your promised appearance and rule. You've said you will not turn away from your people, Israel. You have promised us a place to dwell with you. We want that, Lord. But we want you to walk us through this life, to be prepared to be with you for eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his mighty name, amen. All right, Forge family. Love you. We'll see you soon. God bless.